Morning. If I haven't met you before, my name is David Smith, and there's three different ways you can look at a church. You know, people will say a church can be a school, a place where you come to be educated, you come to learn. A church can also be a hospital where people come to get healed and to mend up. And a, school, a church can also be an army, a place that goes out and is commissioned. And today I want to put on uh, a general hat. Uh, this is going to be a little bit of an army day, and so I'm not going to scream the whole time at you, but... Not that I'm that funny anyway, but there's not going to be a lot of jokes, there's not going to be a lot of lightheartedness, because this topic is so important to me. And that's really what I want as our communicators come up here, what they're communicating. It's not only what God is downloading, but things that light their hearts on fire. And so for today, maybe I should apologize a little bit, but I am really passionate about this topic. So hopefully that comes through as we're discussing today. So we're in week three of our Disqualified series. We've been going through different chunks of the book of Matthew. If you are not on our reading plan with us, I encourage you, go through those double doors on the way out, grab a journal. You can jump in anytime. It's a quick, just two chapters a day, but we are in the gospel of Matthew right now. Now, whenever you jump into a different book of the Bible to read, one of the first questions you should ask is who wrote this book? And immediately you think, oh, I know that answer. It's got to be Matthew. It's actually called the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew wrote it, and I believe Matthew did. In fact, the early church fathers were unanimous. Everybody said, this letter is from Matthew. There wasn't any debate. There wasn't any doubt. Go a couple centuries forward, and all of a sudden there's a little bit of a debate. And the reason why is because the first gospel that was written was the Gospel of Mark. And Matthew and Luke borrowed from Mark and used it as kind of the backbone to build his gospel account on. And that's what made everyone pause and go, wait a second, why would Matthew, who's one of the 12 disciples, borrow from Mark who wrote his gospel when Mark was not one of the 12 disciples. He actually was considered a coward by Paul and Paul just walked away from him. I don't want anything to do with this Mark guy. Amazing that Mark wrote a gospel. And so why in the world would Matthew borrow from Mark? Well, the reason why is that Mark is known historically and biblically to be the person who was the interpreter for Peter. Peter's not only one of the 12, but he was the inner three. And I think what ended up happening is people said, hey, listen, Mark is walking around with Peter. He's getting his eyewitness report. We need to bank on that. And so Matthew built a large part of his gospel off of what Mark had down. But we believe, in fact, that Matthew was the writer of this gospel. And the reason why that's important is because of Matthew's history, where he came from, is what colors and makes this gospel, for me, so powerful. When you think about, I can't believe this individual wrote this book. And so Beth talked last week about the choosing of the first four disciples in Matthew chapter four. And so you have Peter, Andrew, James, and John, uneducated, no experience. They're fishermen, minding their own business, and Jesus says, come and follow me. And so if you can imagine what it would feel like to win the lottery or to make the Olympic team, that's this moment for those four young men. What a privilege, what an honor. Not only is a rabbi saying, I don't care about your education. I don't care about your history. Come follow me. This is the son of God. But unfortunately for those four, it would rain on their parade rather quickly. Because if you go five chapters later to chapter nine, we see there's another disciple that's gonna be chosen to follow Jesus. And it is Matthew. 
And what happens with the choosing of Matthew is I would imagine that Peter, Andrew, James, and John would think to themselves, but I thought this was a special team. Like all week I've been jumping for joy that I actually made this team. I was invited, I was included. What a privilege, what an honor. It was like in my sixth grade school year, I tried out for a select basketball team. I made it, I was thrilled. I was telling everyone, you can't believe the team that I made. And then I show up for the first day of practice and that guy made the team and that guy made the team. And why in the world did they let that guy even in to try out? And of course, they're looking at me as well going, why is David Smith here? All of a sudden, it wasn't that impressive to make the team because of everybody else that was included. Not a great, right, attitude in the moment. I admit that. But all of a sudden, it just rained on my parade. And the joy I had been experiencing all week had been robbed. I think that's what happened to these four disciples. The moment that Jesus called Matthew to come follow, this uniqueness, this privilege, this honor of being on this team, it was diluted because you're inviting that guy. He's good enough to be on the team. What does that say about me? And so for Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the moment that Jesus said to Matthew, come follow me, they would deem him disqualified, not because of his education or his experience. In fact, I would say that Matthew probably had more education, more experience than the other four. The reason why is that he was a tax collector. We talked quite a bit about that. They're the worst of the worst in Jewish culture. So let's look at the moment right here, Matthew 9, 9 through 13. Jesus picks Matthew. And so as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And so Matthew rose and followed him. Now let's bounce back to the gospel of Mark. What we read in Mark chapter two is that Matthew had another name at this time. His name was Levi. And where they go from this moment is to Matthew's house. Doesn't say it here in Matthew, but we see it in Mark. That's why it's so important. If you're reading your Bible and you see these little like numbers pointing you back to another gospel, go read it because it's a similar or the same story that kind of helps fill in the blanks. As Jesus reclined at the table in Matthew's house, behold, or behold, many tax collectors, Matthew's colleagues and sinners came and reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And here's what I'm wondering. Was Peter, Andrew, James, and John thinking the same thing? Did they look back at the Pharisees and say, yeah, if you figure that out, let us know as well, because we don't know why he's eating with these people. This is ridiculous. Tax collectors and sinners. And the reason why they were so bad is tax collectors weren't like chosen to go do the role of collecting taxes. It's not like they were slaves. They were proactive. They actually went to the Roman government and they had to pay the Roman government to have the right to collect taxes from their Jewish friends and family and people. And so the way that they made money is they're paying the Roman government, give me the privilege, the right to go collect taxes. So they knew they would have to exploit all the other Jewish people to ever make a profit. And so the richer a tax collector was just means the more that they exploited their own people. This is the worst of the worst. And so if you were a family member of somebody who was a tax collector, they were dead to you. You didn't mention their name. To friends, former friends, they were considered nothing but thieves. And then think about just the whole Jewish culture. If you're a tax collector, you are rubbing shoulders with the Romans day in and day out. 
That would make you unclean. You can't go to the temple. You can't make a sacrifice to the altar. You've been completely severed from having a relationship with God. Worst of the worst. And what's even great about Matthew is in chapter 5, 18, and 21, he takes a shot at not tax collectors, the people, but of the role. The man who once did this uses the word tax collector as a way to degrade the role in what they're all about. And so even though Matthew, I would imagine, knew plenty about religion, he grew up as a Jewish boy, knew plenty about faith in God, what do you think he was thinking that day? Jesus approaches the booth. There's Matthew just doing his job, and Jesus says, come and follow me. If I was a betting man, what I would imagine that Matthew was thinking is, you don't want me. You got the wrong guy. There is no way that Jesus wants me. And so as we were talking as a staff team about why we want to do this series, is we've recognized there are millions and millions and millions of people on our globe right now on this planet that know a little bit about God, they know a little bit about religion, but if a Christian is coming their way, their first thought is, you don't want me. Your church doesn't want me. Your God doesn't want me. Just stay away because of their lifestyle, maybe because of their decisions, their hangups, their politics, you name it. You've got neighbors, you've got coworkers, you've got family members, and you have friends. I guarantee you, they know a little bit about God, they may know a little bit about religion, but when Christians come their way, you don't want me. And to think about all the people in our lives, maybe some of us are in here today, maybe we're watching online, I hope you're encouraged by what we're sharing today. If there's that many people who have that kind of thinking, then we have to address this. This has to be an important topic. And so in the show, The Chosen, if you guys have seen this, uh, kind of narrates the life of Jesus picking his disciples. Fantastic show. But there's a scene that I want to point out. And it's the scene of Matthew in the tax collector booth and Jesus calling him to come follow him. And it's a beautiful exchange because the disciples are upset. They don't want Matthew chosen. They think this is a huge mistake. And so Peter says on the show, he says, Jesus, what are you doing? Uh, I don't get it. Why are we picking Matthew? And Jesus says, you didn't get it when I chose you either. Peter responds, but Jesus, this is different. I'm not a tax collector. And Jesus says back to him, get used to different. And I love that line because that's what I want for our church, that we would actually get used to things being different. And so the Matthew in your life, the person you have no association with, that deep down in your heart, maybe you feel like they're disqualified to having a relationship with God, you know what my prayer, my hope is, is that one day you are shoulder to shoulder with them worshiping here on a Sunday morning. That you're studying the word in a pathway group. You're doing dinner together. You're receiving prayer for them. That the Matthews in our lives, whoever they may be, we'd be living life together, hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder, back to back. I'm not saying we don't have some of that going on, but my dream is that we would be a church that is flooded with those type of relationships. So how do we get there? That's what I wanna talk about today. Let me pray and we'll dive further in. So Lord, we love you, we thank you. Lord, you are the author of this kind of tension of what it looks like to have those that we think are disqualified in our life and for us to recognize, Lord, that we are all your children. 
And so Jesus, I just pray today that if we are in a place where we feel disqualified, we feel rejected, that Lord, you would just open wider our experience of your love and your grace and your mercy. We would hear your invitation. Lord, let me not get in the way of it. I pray against any motives, any agenda I'm bringing to this talk. Lord, you get rid of it. We wanna hear from you alone. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, how many of you ever heard of the lifeboat theory? Maybe some of you have. Schools use it from time to time. It's a social science experiment. And what it says is that there is a cruise boat that's out in the ocean. The cruise boat hits an iceberg. Maybe their engine goes out and all of a sudden that ship begins to sink. And so they get a bunch of lifeboats, start throwing people in the lifeboats. They take off. All's going to be well. Until they get to the last lifeboat, there are six seats and there's nine people. And so the project is to figure out with a group of people, so who doesn't make it on the boat? And here's the nine people we have left for six spots. We've got a lawyer, we've got a person with broken legs, we've got a doctor, a pregnant woman, an 85-year-old man, a 10-year-old kid, a drug dealer, a missionary, and a teacher. And so Maybe in another time, I'd have you guys get in circles and I'd say, all right, so discuss, who are the three people that are not gonna make it on the lifeboat? I think some arguments and some fights may break out. You're all wonderful people. Let's don't go there. So just imagine who are those three people that wouldn't make it? Well, when they do this little project, this little exercise, the three that typically get left off is the 85-year-old man. He's lived a good life, right? He's lucky he made it to 85 the person with the broken legs. They're just gonna slow us down. It's probably their fault they got broken. And then the drug dealer, right? Drug dealers just making things worse for everybody out there in society. Let's leave them on the cruise ship. The six spots are for these six people, right? And so you have this conversation and the idea is that it's just an exercise. It's just a project. But I would kind of push back on that because I don't think it's just a project. I actually think this is day-to-day life because think about every moment that you have throughout your day where you have to make the same exact decision. Who am I gonna reject? Who am I gonna accept? And who am I gonna invite into my conversation, under the lunch table, into my activity, into the work project, whatever it may be. You have multiple times, probably every 15 minutes, where you're making this decision. Who am I gonna lay on the lifeboat? Who am I gonna accept? Who am I gonna invite? And who am I gonna reject? And I think the lie that we start believing is that, well, there's probably really not a lifeboat, right? If you know who Jesus is and God is, I mean, he's unconditional, there's no lifeboat. And I'm here to say today, there is a lifeboat, without a doubt. The lie we believe is that the lifeboat is limited. And the lifeboat is not limited. There are seats for absolutely everyone. The lie we believe is that somebody has to go because the boat is too small. That's how a Pharisee thinks. And so as we go back to our passage and the Pharisees are saying, well, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What the Pharisees really saying is the lifeboat is limited and we are the judge and we are the jury and somebody has to go. That's what's happening. And I wonder how many of us here today have ever done that, where you've been the one to decide who leaves the lifeboat. Have you ever been the one to decide you just don't fit in? Or have you been on the other end of the spectrum where you're the one that's been tossed off the lifeboat? I've experienced both. I've been tossed off 
and I've done the tossing. And I'll tell you what, some of those wounds in my life from those moments still have not healed to this day. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't believe that that lifeboat is limited. Don't count the seats because Jesus has made room for everyone. I don't know what's hurt worse, to be honest with you. Being tossed or being the one doing the tossing. Now, obviously, there's no human being that can toss me out of my relationship with Jesus. But they can make statements. They can do things that make me think I don't belong. And I've done that to others. Don't be a Pharisee. Verse 12, when Jesus heard this, they said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? He says, those who are well have no need for a physician. But those who are sick are the ones that do. And so go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That is Hosea chapter six, verse six. Go read that today. What does that mean? For I came not to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. And so what Jesus is saying here, if you are not able or willing to acknowledge your need to be cleansed of sin, and you believe that you are righteous alone without me, he's saying, I can't help you. Not because he lacks power, not because he lacks sovereignty or love in his heart, but he's saying, I'm a gentleman and I'm not gonna force my way into your heart. He says, I'm not gonna do it. That's not a relationship. He said, you've gotta open up. You've gotta say yes. You've gotta receive this offer and this life of eternity that I'm giving you. Jesus said, that's who I've come for. I've come for the sinners who can confess two things. I can confess my sin and my need for a savior. He said, that's who I came for. And so every week we ask you, have you confessed those two things? Because that's where it starts. Saying, Lord Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner in need of a savior who, who desperately can't do this life on my own and I won't live in the afterlife, the other life, the life through eternity without you. And so that's why we use the language like, I invite you into my heart, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior. Only you can save me from my sin. Who died on the cross as a sacrifice and rose again three days later to offer us life. And so when people come up front with the prayer teams, if that is something that you've not done, you're ready to make that decision today, that's the moment of just saying yes. I receive your eternal life. I step into relationship with you. And so I want just to imagine for a moment if Matthew was left off the lifeboat. It would look like a great decision in the moment because sure, he started off as Levi the tax collector, but he ends up as a gospel author. Like think about those two words. He didn't just write a novel, didn't just write a little short poem for the Loveland Herald. Like this is a gospel that will endure for all time. And so his gospel was known as the gospel of the king because its focus was on the kingdom of God. Now, how appropriate for Matthew? He was a man who knew a lot about kings. He traded one for the other. He ditched Caesar completely and said, now I'm gonna follow Jesus fully. And that's the key right there. We have to follow Jesus fully. That doesn't mean perfect. There'll be mistakes there'll be sin. But this whole idea that there's this little line that we can straddle, that there's a lukewarm faith, there's an area in the gray. Jesus says, no, it's either in or it's out. That's not me trying to be like Mr. Tough and stern and make a decision. I'm, this is what the Bible says. 
He actually talks about lukewarm faith and spitting it out. And so he says, are you in? Are you out? Don't have to be perfect. We're all a work in progress. And so God will never share his throne with another. That's why he's saying, are we all in? Will you fully give your heart to me? And we may think like, gosh, I guess he needs me. He needs me. No, no, this is a gift for us. He said, when you're fully in, you're gonna experience the more that God has for you. In the Old Testament, when someone who had a king outside of God was living this lukewarm faith, they actually called them a prostitute, which I know is strong language, but you see it absolutely all over the place. And it wasn't because they're physically selling their bodies, but spiritually they're compromising their soul. Look at Leviticus chapter 20. This is verse six through seven. The Lord is talking to Moses and says, I will set my face against anyone who turns to mediums and false spirits and prostitutes themselves by following them. And I will cut them off from their people. Consecrate yourself and be holy because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. See, prostitution is discipleship 101. And what I mean by that is that one of the very first pillars of discipleship is do not sell, do not prostitute any part of your life to any false God outside of King Jesus. That's discipleship 101. Prostitution, do not sell or prostitute any part of your life to a false king. That's biblical. That's just what it says. The prostitution is mentioned 150 times in the Bible, maybe more. And what you'll notice as you go through it, verse after verse after verse, is that prostitution, again, let me say it, is not just selling one's body, but it is compromising our soul. Two weeks ago, Cody showed us a video of a lady named Annie Lobert. And it was the happy ending of her story. She was stuck in prostitution for quite a while, had an incredible conversion experience, gave her life to Jesus, and now is sharing her testimony. And what I wanna do in this video, I wanna back up to the beginning. And I want you to hear her story about how she got into this trap in the first place. And as she's sharing, what I want you to think about is what is she saying that could relate to Matthew spiritually? Because what we'll find is the same things that locked Annie into this horrendous nightmare I believe are the same things that trapped Matthew. Let's watch this. I got out into the beautiful city of Minneapolis, tried to find a way to go to college, but I had to work three jobs to have my own place and buy a car. And I, I found like a new thing inside of me that if I had nice clothes, if I went out to the clubs, I could meet different men that liked me and Maybe I could meet a rich guy that would sweep me off my feet and take care of me like a, like a prince would. And so my girlfriend and I started going out to the nightclubs and we had a fake ID. And one night we walked in, these men walked up to us at the bar and bought us drinks, Rolex watches, designer clothes. I looked at my girlfriend, these guys have money. My girlfriend starts to like one of the men told my girlfriend, get that guy's money. And I think what this really was building inside me was this vendetta, this deep-seated, rooted unforgiveness towards my dad, towards that boy in school. And I just wanted revenge. I was going to prove that I could make it in my life. And money was going to be the answer. 
my girlfriend takes off with this guy, goes to Hawaii. I'm working my three jobs. She calls me up and says, listen, I am on the beach. I'm in a drop-top Corvette, and I'm on my cell phone, and you need to come out here. And even though I didn't have the guts to ask her, you know, what, what are you doing? I just kind of went with it. It was like an automatic walking into a dark doorway that I knew something wasn't right. But the lure of the possibility of having nice things and have, finally having money that I never had growing up, finally being someone important, overrode all those feelings of any caution and it blew it to the wind. And I went to Hawaii that very week, took a vacation from my jobs. And the first night that I was on Waikiki Beach, I actually sold myself with my girlfriend to some Japanese clients and I became a prostitute. It's kind of like I had this ring that I put on and I couldn't take it off. If you listen to some of the things that she said, I just, I wanted to be somebody. I stepped into this darkness and, you know, I imagine Matthew, was there something about tax collectors in that time where they felt like they had to prove their worth and money was the way to do it? And I'll even sell out my brothers and my sisters. I'll exploit them so I could be somebody. I also think about the comparison of taking shortcuts. See, prostitution is taking shortcuts in a way. When you think about the compromising of our soul. In Annie's story, the shortcut was that she was working three jobs. She was tired of doing that. So I can just go work one job. And for Matthew, see, the Romans had their foot on the necks of the Jewish people. So you had to scrap and claw just to make ends meet. But Matthew now has this opportunity, wait a minute. If I step into this role, I'll have to work one job. And not only have to work one job, I can make all this money and finally be someone. And then fall into the lure of poison possibility. I bet Matthew could relate. And the last one she said, you know, if you guys have watched the Lord of the Rings movies or read the books, that, that one ring, like they have such a hard time, right? Taking it off, getting rid of it. And I thought she said that in such a unique way that there's this ring on my hand, on my finger, I just can't get off now. And I wonder if Matthew had that same feeling. That once he stepped into this role, no matter how bad it was for him, how bad it was for his people, he just couldn't stop. Because like Annie, Matthew was a prostitute. Not physically to an abuser, but spiritually to Rome. And like Andy, he was trapped and he couldn't take his ring off until the day that Jesus showed up and came to his booth and said, Matthew, follow me. I've got a seat for you on the boat. And so the tragedy of trying to earn a spot on the lifeboat is that we end up pushing people out when there's enough room for everybody. Like that's the tragedy. When you think it's limited and you start pushing people out, Jesus is screaming, what are you doing? I've got room for absolutely everyone, even those whose thinking and their lifestyles are different than yours. He says, I have made room, I have secured a spot for everyone. Now, some people won't accept a seat. We'll be kind, we'll be generous, we'll scoot over, here's your seat, and they'll say, no, I don't wanna go that way. 
And so what happens is that if we can just remember there's a seat for everyone. And the temptation is going to be, well, what about, what about that person who lives that lifestyle? Well, what about th- that person who committed that crime or is making that decision? What I would say is pump the brakes. Let Jesus untangle the life jackets. Your first job is just to invite. Now, that's just the first job. There's other jobs you'll play. But if we don't invite, the seats will never be filled. Jesus has created room for everyone. Absolutely everyone. He's going to untangle those life jackets. I know it can be a mess. Our first job is to invite. And the reason why I'm so passionate about this is I don't want us to be a church that disqualifies a Levi that Jesus is about to make a Matthew. Because to me, that's tragic. Don't disqualify a Levi that Jesus is about to make a Matthew. And the reason I'm so passionate about that is because I was a Levi for a good chunk of my life, just spiritually prostituting myself to the highest bidder. As simple as sports, as complex as human relationships and reputation. But I had people in my life that stood up in the lifeboat and they scooted over and they said, here's your seat. And they were loving They were unconditional, they were kind, but they were also firm. They were firm and they were also honest. And part of that honesty, I'm trying not to make a joke about that phone. (laughs) It's okay, thanks for getting that off. But part of their honesty was like, David, this seat is for you, but here's what this entails. Here's what the word of God lays out about living a life for Jesus. And so unconditional, kind, here's your seat, but also firm and honest because I was living a lifestyle that was going the wrong way. And so praise the Lord, I had friends that said, hey, I'm not making this conditional, but this is what it means to be on the boat. Not that Jesus needs you to behave a certain way, but the life that he has for you is gonna be richer and it's gonna be deeper. Scooting over, here's your seat. We all prostitute. And when we give our lives to Jesus, we are no longer prostitutes. We're children of God. Lifeboat passengers who, yeah, from time to time, we may prostitute our souls. We may compromise spiritually, but we're forgiven and we're redeemed. We all have moments, we're gonna have moments of compromising ourselves to false kings, but that doesn't disqualify us from having a relationship with Jesus. It doesn't disqualify your coworkers, your friends, your family, your neighbors, and praise God, it didn't disqualify Matthew either, the apostle and the gospel author. And so here's what I wanna close with. Here's what I want our church flooded with. I want our church flooded with two groups of people. And the first group is a group that believes they have been disqualified from having a relationship with Jesus. If you know those people, or if you're one of those people, praise God that you're here. I so, I'm, so, I'm so grateful and it's a privilege and an honor for people who feel like they're disqualified to be part of this church family. So invite them in. The second group we want is a group of people who are willing to scoot over in the lifeboat and say, here's your seat. Because if you can bring those two groups together, that is gonna be heaven on earth. And so will the Lord be gracious and kind to us and flood us with those two groups of people. 
because that's the heart of our mission. That's why we try to give away over 40% every single year. That's why for 21 straight years, we go out rain or shine into the lower income areas, our neighbors in need. That's why we have the care center and mission trips and you name it. Because what's so important for us to communicate every time we do each of those things is here's your seat. Every Saturday morning, that's all we're saying, here's your seat. Care center, here's your seat. When we're going out and we're loving our neighbors, here's your seat. Come whenever you're ready. It's open, he's willing, he's waiting. Here's your seat. That's the heart of our mission. You can call it go love live or you can scoot over and you can say, here's your seat. It's the exact same thing. And so let's stand, I'm gonna have the worship team come up. And we're gonna close with a time of communion and prayer and worship. And I know this is a little cheesy, but when I think about communion, you know, the idea of this lifeboat is that it was built from the wood of the cross because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, which we remember every time we take communion, the body broken, the blood poured out. There is a lifeboat for everybody, for those who will say yes. And so we take communion, we're acknowledging, I have said yes to you, Jesus, and I wanna remember what you've done for me. <laughs> then with our prayer teams today, it, if you just woke up, maybe the talk put you to sleep and you're now like, oh, okay, great. I've got some prayer requests today and it's completely different than the talk. That's great. We wanna pray for whatever you're going through. But I also wanna just throw out an idea. And I get this is risky because I'm gonna say some stuff here and you may be thinking, darn it, I wanted prayer. And now people are gonna think I'm coming up to get prayer for this. Nobody's thinking that. When you come up for prayer, all anyone is thinking is what courage that man, that woman, that child must have to come get prayer. So if you're scared, if you're fearful about coming to get prayer, I'm telling you, all anyone's thinking is what courage they must have. But I think there's some of us today that we just need the truth and the love of God washed over us because we're believing things like we've been disqualified or we don't have a seat on the boat. And the word of God, as encouraging as it is, and as these teams are praying over you, it's not just to give you a nice message to feel good. It's actually, it's taking a chisel and saying, we are gonna break this chain in two because the truth of God, that you are accepted, you are loved, you're his beloved, that can break chains. But if you can come up and also share, here's the dark thought I just can't shake. Here's the ring I can't get off my finger. We're gonna pray specifically to that thing, that that stronghold would be broken. And that you'd walk out of here feeling freedom like you've never felt before. I believe that is true. I know that is true. And so whatever it is, whatever that prayer request may be for you, we would love to pray for you. So let me close this in prayer. And we'll move into our time of worship. Lord, we love you. We thank you. I just, I just wanna say if there's any thought that says you don't want me, that's in this room right now, in the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you enter wherever that lie is living in our minds, in our hearts, and start rooting it out right now. Just start rooting it out. Let this be a time where chains are broken, darkness is pushed away, light comes in, Hope is restored. We are not prostitutes. We are children of God. Lord, let us walk in the identity you have given us. 
And so freedom come in this time. Answer your name, we pray. Amen. So as you feel led, come up, take communion, receive prayer. Let's worship.